I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. This Christmas... There's a big ball of green in the tree. It's evergreen. Continually branching mass of stems. You, me, and mistletoe. The whole clump is usually about two feet across maximum, or sometimes you see them as big as a metre. Each stem produces two shoots each year, and then that one produces two shoots. So you end up with quite a symmetrical ball of green. Coming into the winter, you get the white berries on it, which uh, everybody's familiar with. I'm Guy Barter, and this is Gardening with the RHS. You've just heard from Graham Rice. He's a garden writer, perhaps best known for editing the RHS Encyclopedia of Perennials. He's here to tell us about a plant that has links with winter romance, mistletoe. The species of mistletoe we have in this country is called Viscum album. It seems to have had a place in kind of folklore for a very, very long time, kind of going back to the Druids and all that. And I think it's partly derived from the fact that if you look closely at the tips of the shoot where the berries are, there's a general understanding that it looks a little bit like the sexual organs. So that has inspired all sorts of connections, as you can imagine, of which the kissing under the mistletoe is the most familiar one. It would only brought you romance and good luck if you plucked a berry off after your kiss, which nobody does anymore. <laughs> but that obviously limited the amount of kissing that was allowed. <laughs> it's a sort of partial parasite. I mean, it has small green leaves and it photosynthesizes like all other green leaf plants do. But the seeds germinate on branches of the trees and then the root insinuates itself through the bark and into the system of the plant. So it partly derives its sustenance from the sap of the tree and partly from its green leaves. It's about the only plant we have in this country that does that, I think. If you want to grow mistletoe in your own garden at home, it's quite simple, really. All you need to do is take some of the berries and just kind of smear them onto the branches of appropriate trees. Now, mistletoe is quite fussy about what it grows on. The majority of mistletoe in this country grows on apple trees and crabapple trees. There's a fantastic plant just around the corner from here on a cotoneaster. At the moment, it's got bright red berries on it, and then the white berries and the green ball of the mistletoe looks fantastic. But all you do is you take the berries, smear them onto a fairly thin branch, and just leave them there. And usually it germinates, if it's going to germinate, it germinates in you know, a couple of months. But then growth is very slow. 
and it sort of sits there for a bit and then it maybe produces the shoes. It's not for three or four years that it really starts getting going. It's often suggested that you actually cut the bark and peel back the bark and tuck the berries underneath the bark. Not a good idea. Really, it's one of those things that's grown up but doesn't really have much basis to it. So um, it's just enough to smear it on the branches. The other thing is that, like holly, mistletoe comes in male and female plants. And obviously only the female ones will produce any berries. So it's a good idea, if you want to grow this at home, to make sure you have berries, to put quite a lot of berries on different host plants in the hope of getting more than just the one seedling germinate and grow. Then you've got a much better chance of eventually getting berries. It takes a few years, but um, you will do it eventually. It doesn't really need any care over the long term. Just leave it be and enjoy it and don't cut too much off for the <laughs> to bring in the house. One interesting thing about it, actually, is that um, naturally, always used to grow wild, kind of in the Herefordshire, Gloucestershire, that sort of area. And then um, with the railways, people started moving it around the country at Christmas to sell. Then that works partly because once it's cut, it lasts a really long time. It's not something that collapses just in a week or two. It lasts a really long time. So first, so people put it on trains and shipped it around the country. And mistletoe started turning up in other parts of the country. And then the other thing that happened was that birds distributed it. One of these sort of old wives' tale things, in a way. It was always said that thrushes ate the berries, or rather picked the berries, and then smeared them off their beaks onto the branches, and then they germinated. In fact, this turns out to be complete rubbish. <laughs> and what happens is the song thrush eats the berry like, like it eats most berries, and it screets the seeds, and they stick on the branches. But the whole thing of wiping the beak on the branches happens with the black cap, which is a much less familiar bird to most of us, small, kind of black-headed little bird. But what's happened with the climate changing, far more black caps are staying in this country over the winter rather than migrating, and they're spreading around the country more, and they're taking the mistletoe around the country with them. So it's now spreading over the rest of England, going up into Scotland and into Ireland. It's still less common there, but first of all, the railways and then the black cap is making sure it's spreading across the country. I mean, I would encourage anybody to give it a go at home if you've got the right trees. Apple trees and, and limes, the most widespread hosts. Then there's hawthorns and poplar, maples, willows, crab apples, rabinia, false acacia. There, was, there used to be a huge clump on a rabinia just outside the front of the Hampton Court Palace Garden that everybody passed on the way to the flower show, but um, unfortunately that was chopped down a couple of years ago. But... Uh, the little bit of mistletoe you can buy in the market or in the greengrocers, you can keep the berries off that. Just keep them in somewhere cool and light through the winter and wait till March or February before you put them on the tree. But, you know, it's a little thing, small thing to do, fun, interesting, and with a bit of luck you'll get uh, enough mistletoe to get some berries. Well, hearing Graham has really got me into the spirit. I'm sitting here in my Santa hat, Christmas jumper, and some festive socks too. It's the perfect outfit for this week's show, as we hear the story of an influential holly expert, get the lowdown on a winter plant that brings us joy in these colder months, and get inspired to create a festive cocktail. But before we get to the drinks... Let's head to Boston and the home of Dr. Xu Ying Hu. Dr. Hu was a renowned botanist. She collected and identified as many as 188,000 plant specimens and is most known for her work with hollies and daylilies. 
In fact, many of the known species of the holly plant in the world are named after Doctor Who herself. She spent the majority of her career at Harvard University in the USA. Where we're heading now, to meet some people that knew her best. I'm David Buford. I've been here at Harvard for 40 years. I've met Doctor Who for the first time when I came to Harvard in 1981. What my interest was with her was in the flora of China, the plants of China. One of the major projects she started that had been discussed in China for many years was to produce an account of all the plants that grew, grew in China, grew wild in China. You know, people had discussed it, but then in China, it was very difficult to get anything started. And when Dr. Hu was employed by the Arboretum, one of her main projects was to get working on this account of all the plants in China. And she hired a team of people to work with her on compiling a, a list of all the plants known from China. Uh, she assembled all the literature on the plants of China. And then she started writing about the plants, writing descriptions of each of the species. Within about four years, she produced the first volume of Flora of China treating the Mallow family, Malvasi. My name is uh, Thomas Hugh, and uh, grandnephew of Dr. Xiuing Hu. Both her parents were very poor farmers. They did not receive uh, any education. Dr. Hu's mother sent Dr. Hu to the school to receive education. I think that could be the most influenced person in Dr. Hu's early life. She sacrificed everything to send two children to the school. Not many poor Chinese farmers they did. And I think that woman has great vision uh, wisdom about the children. Dr. Hu, she was a sponsor for my college education. Since then, I really looking up to her as my role model. We had a close relationship. We always call her as a grandma, treat as a friend. So that's the parts I going to miss always. She was always so curious. You know, she came across something that she hadn't heard of before. She would take the time to go to the library or, or go to the herbarium and look at specimens and try to find out more about it. And I think that's one of the things that kept her going so long, that she never ran out of things to uh, try to investigate. I think uh, we tell people about her life story is to helping people understanding a poor village girl become the one of the most successful botanists in the world. How much personal effort to become a successful person. She surely was a trailblazing woman scientist, you know, at a time when it was very difficult for women and also for a Chinese woman, especially here in the United States. She did extremely well and set a really good example. She has helping so many people make their lives better. That teach us 
Only when you give your love to the others will make this world better. Thanks, Thomas and David. If you want to see some astounding hollies in the flesh, RHS Garden Rosemore is the home of the only registered national plant collection of hollies in the UK. There are 170 types of them in the garden, but I particularly like Hansworth New Silver. It's a variegated holly with cream edges and green centres. It's very spiky, but the leaves are long and elegant, and the stems have a lovely purple tinge when they're young. Because hollies are a native plant, and so many have been bred all around the world, but particularly in Britain, it's important to conserve them. We call this the conservation of biodiversity. It's something the RHS takes very seriously as part of its sustainability activities. It might not feel like it at this time of year, especially when the nights draw in and the garden looks bare, but there is a lot of beauty to behold in the garden. I particularly enjoy the Algerian iris, Iris unguicularis. This is a traditional plant that gardeners have grown for many, many, many years, and they usually put it at the foot of a south-facing wall, which is exactly what I've done in my garden, so I can enjoy its lovely violet flowers and its white and violet falls. That's the downward part of petals that makes irises so lovely. And I'm not alone in enjoying the garden in the colder months. Verity Battle is a team leader for the trials team at RHS Garden Wisley, where she's describing one of her favourite winter plants. They are small herbaceous perennials, perfect for the front of a border. The flowers come in a range of different colours, from sort of pale pinks to maroons to creams, almost through to black in some cases. The leaves are actually also really interesting, especially on some of the more modern introductions, can have white marbling on the leaves as well, so they're actually really, really attractive. Have you guessed what she's talking about yet? It's the hellebore, and Verity's love affair with the plant started close to home. My earliest memories of hellebores are probably actually from this garden. I grew up very close to Wisley, so I've been visiting ever since I was a very small child. And so I imagine this is probably where I first saw hellebores. So hellebores will be available in garden centres after Christmas, probably up until springtime, so have a look out for them then. They quite like a woodland setting, really. They're not off plant for full sun, so dappled shade is ideal. And I think they look best sort of en masse. So if you can, buy more than one or two, get a nice little group of them, and they'll look really nice. Some hellebores, particularly the hybrid types, their leaves can grow up and sort of cover some of the flowers. So you can actually cut the leaves off just when they're about to flower. And then you can appreciate the flowers and then the leaves will grow back again after flowering in the spring. But with some of the more modern introductions, you don't need to do that. The leaves actually are part of the whole package of the hellebore and you wouldn't want to take them off. And also some of the more modern ones, the flowers are actually held more upright more traditional, older kind of hellebores, their heads naturally hang down and sort of face the floor, which is fine, but it means you can't always appreciate them. The more modern ones hold their head upright. If you have got some that hang downwards, a nice way to display them is actually if you cut some of the flowers off and put them in a a bowl of water, like floating flowers, and then you can actually appreciate them on a coffee table and you can actually see the real intricacy of the flowers because some of them really are beautiful, cream with kind of 
pink and red speckling's on some of them. Really, really lovely. I'm a bit biased, but I would say some of the best places to see hellebores are here at Wisley. We've got the Winter Walk, and we've got several groups of hellebores on the Winter Walk, which you will come across as you walk around. They are stunning. We've got them planted in groups of about 50s, so quite a lot of plants, but they do make an impact. And we have them mixed. We have some of the, the older ones, more traditional ones that hang down, but also some of the more modern ones, where they are more upright and they've got their lovely leaves, so you can compare and contrast the two. Also, we have just planted our hellebore trial in the trials garden and that'll be in for a couple of years. So head to the trials garden if you're visiting soon and uh, you'll be able to see them and compare the different entries and find out which one your favourite is. Because hellebores flower in the winter, um, you can combine them with other winter flowering uh, favourites. So for example, cornus and salix, winter stems, if you make yourself a nice little winter corner, or you could put them, if you want some evergreen, you could put them with some little pinus mugos, little tiny mounds of pinus. And then say in the summer, they are there, the leaves are there, but they're not really doing their thing. They're not being showy. So you could have them in a dappled shade spot there in the summer, or pair them with some winter interest, and you'll just have a really nice corner of your garden that is looking lovely in the winter time. Thanks Verity. I absolutely adore hellebores. I particularly like the yellow ones. One that caught my eye is Harvington Hybrid, yellow with dark eyes, which is exactly what it says. A beautiful yellow hellebore with black spots in the centre of its flowers. Now it wouldn't be a celebration of Christmas without a delicious drink, and I know the perfect person to make one for us. Hello, my name's Mark Diacono. I'm uh, a food and garden writer. I'm spending all my time growing, eating or talking about food. And I'd like to make you a Charlie's Mojito, which is a kind of gin and tonic mojito. I don't know many people who don't love a mojito. And this is a drink that started accidentally. I was making a mojito at a show. I think it might have been at RHS Tan. And I was talking about the origins of the mojito, talking about how it comes from Cuba. And it comes from a drink that was originally called Le Drac. And that was invented in honor Sir Francis Drake, which is a kind of nice story, except in front of a couple hundred people, I said it was made honor of Sir Charlie Drake, accidentally. And everyone started laughing. I thought, what's funny about Francis Drake? And then realized my mistake. And I thought, okay, I've, the only way I can pull myself back from this is by inventing a cocktail and call it Charlie's Mojito, which is what I did. The classic mojito has five ingredients, rum, sugar, soda water, lime, and mint. And this has exactly that framework, but the ingredients, the actual ingredients are made up slightly differently. The English mojito has gin in place of the rum, so we're okay with that. We've used tonic instead of soda water. Mint is still there and the lime is still there. But the thing that makes it different is the addition of lemon verbena. And lemon verbena may be my favourite herb. I'm saying that cautiously because it's like your favourite album that changes every day. But it's just wonderful. It's like lemons, only better. It's full of zing and sherbetiness. And the way to get it into this delightful cocktail is to make a syrup of it. And making herb syrups is maybe the easiest thing you'll ever do. And it's a perfect way of capturing these amazing flavours for using in lots of different ways. You'd take 
equal weight of sugar and water. So it could be 200 grams or 400 grams, but equal of the two, put it in a pan, just get it so that the nicely warmed so that the sugar dissolves. And at that point, turn off the heat, throw in your herb. It doesn't matter how much. If you put in a little, it'll take longer. If you put in loads, you'll be pulling it out soon. Keep tasting it. Keep tasting it. When it's the strength you want, extract the herb and you've got your syrup. So it's gin, lemon verbena syrup, lime, mint, tonic water in place of the soda water. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Lots and lots of crushed ice. I mean, it really ought to be a six ingredient drink because the crushed ice is as important as any other element of it. It's pleasantly wakey-wakey because everything should be stone cold, but it's not too discombobulating. Yeah, it's good. And it's one of those, I think a lot of people really love lemon verbena, but they're always, or at least I get asked a lot, what do you do with lemon verbena? What do you do with lemon verbena? And getting it into syrup form is such a good thing because it's great on ice cream, it's great in cocktails, really nice just with, as a drink, you know, using it as a cordial, it's really wonderful. There are two elements here that you can grow yourself. Yes, you can grow lime if you're particularly dedicated to it and you have all the conditions, but let's concentrate on the herbs. Lemon verbena is really, really easy to grow as long as you follow a couple of things. It's good to start with a young plant or an older one if you're in a hurry for a big harvest. They're both perennial. Mint and lemon verbena are both perennial. Lemon verbena is as simple, really, as not watering it too much. I tend to grow mine in a container, and I think as a default, that's a pretty good thing to do because... The one time it's a little bit temperamental is when it gets cold, or in particular when it gets cold and wet. It hates having wet feet in the winter. So one good thing to do is bring the pot quite near to the house. Some people even bring it undercover. But even if you just move the pot right up next to the house, it tends not to get affected by the worst of the cold, worst of the frosts. You'll think you've killed it. And then depending where you are in the country, late April, maybe early May, it will come back and be a delight. Don't water it over winter, I would say. Um, you know, it'd be perfectly fine. The other thing I don't do anymore is I don't prune it back in winter. A lot of people in autumn or going into winter, they will prune the plant back. And that's all fine. You know, it's not incorrect as such, but I find that if I leave the pruning back until next spring, any hit that they take from the cold is experienced by the upper parts of the branch area, the network of branches that the plant has and you'll be removing those anyway. So it kind of gives you a little bit of insulation. But lemon verbena, it's really good. There are a couple of other, I mean, if you're really lucky, you might find orange verbena around. I think there's a lime one as well, but they're very hard to get hold of. But lemon verbena, very easy to grow. You haven't killed it. It will come back. Don't worry. And mint, really. I think mint is the plant for anyone who feels like they've been born to this earth to kill everything. You have to take out endless repeated attempts on its life to actually see it off. The one that you want, I would say if you only have space or inclination to grow one mint, then it should be Moroccan mint. It's it's full of zing without being pepperminty. It's a spearmint. It's really good, full of flavor, but not brash or unpleasant. Really, it's just got everything about it that works really well. It's great in anything really where you want mint, especially a mojito, very good mint sauce all of those sorts of things. There are many, many other excellent mints, but if you ask me which one to grow, if you only had one, I would say it would be Moroccan mint. I would grow it in a container for um, different reasons. It's perfectly happy in winter. You can run it. I've run it over in a tractor. I've left plants out for the rabbits to attack. They've been totally fine. The reason I grow it in a pot is that they like to spread. And that can be great. I would say grow mint under an apple tree if you're fed up with 
mowing under an apple tree and bashing your head on the branches, it's a really good way of stopping you having to go under there. And of course, when it flowers, it brings all the pollinators. So that's all good. But growing it in a pot is the thing because it stops the spread and it also stops it meeting other varieties of mint if you're growing other ones in the garden. Because if one variety of mint meets another, in effect, what happens is you end up with one mint that's kind of between the two. They start to morph into each other a little bit and meet in the middle. So you lose the qualities that you're after. So grow it in a pot is my advice with mint. Mark's drink includes lemon verbena. Sometimes people confuse lemon verbena with lemon balm. Lemon balm is Melissa officinalis, a robust shrubby plant, tough as old boots. Most gardens will have one somewhere, but its lemon flavour is not great. It makes a fair tea, whereas lemon verbena, officially called Aloysia citeradora, has a delightful lemon flavour. Well, that's it for this week. In my garden this weekend, I'll be in the shed. All summer it gets everything chucked into it and I've already started buying stuff for next year. So I'm going to have a really good clean out and tidy up. If the sun comes out, I'll take my secateurs and loppers and go out and start on pruning the soft fruit. For more on anything we've discussed, from mistletoe to the work of Doctor Who, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or look at our show notes. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm off to find some mistletoe. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.